Right, well, good morning. It is good to see you. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 22, and that's where we'll be today. As you're turning, let me take advantage of that moment to pray for us. Well, what a good gift you've given us to sing, um, sing the gospel, really, to sing the good news, Lord Jesus, that you lived the life that we could never live. You died a death in our place and you rose from the dead as evidence that the Father received your sacrifice as acceptable on our behalf. And we wanna say to you that you are King Jesus, our first love. You are before all and above all. And we want our lives to, to bear all the marks of a people who love you dearly and who wanna follow you closely and who want to be as you are. So we wanna be marked by graciousness and humility. We wanna be marked by love. We wanna be marked by truth and boldness and courage. We wanna be marked by sacrifice. Father, as we look into your word today, would you have your way with us? Let it sit in authority over us. Would you use it to shape us into the kinds of leaders and the kinds of men and women we are to be? We pray it, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. We've been on a journey the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, it's on the road with Jesus to the cross, identifying that in the middle of the book of Luke, Jesus really, he sets his face towards Jerusalem. That's the way Luke writes it. But really what he means is Jesus is declaring that he is now uh, determined and set upon the cross that he must bear. And he's moving towards it with sort of uh, increasing uh, with increasing, you know, rapidity. That's not even, that's a weird word to use. Uh, but he's moving quickly towards the cross. And so every lesson he chooses to teach his disciples in these moments now becomes paramount. They become so important because they are sort of his parting shots with these men who have followed him now for years and are gonna need to know some things. So you remember that we've seen him teach them about what it looks like to pray and we've seen him what it teach them what it looks like to go out and to make disciples, to make more followers for him. And, and he's trying to impart these special, unique things to them, these the clear teachings. So we come again to another one of those teachings today. And let me just read it to you. Follow along with me in Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30. Keep in mind the context of this discussion now that we're about to read uh, is the, the Last Supper. It's Jesus gathered around the table the night he will be betrayed uh, and the night he will be put on trial. Uh, and then the, tomorrow go to the cross this is the context into which this conversation, in which this conversation takes place. It says this in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So those are the seven verses we're gonna look at today and I wanted to keep it short because they are packed. They are packed with, with such uh, profound meaning that what I want to offer you is this. I think that these verses are about Jesus teaching us that the gospel makes a new kind of leader. 
The gospel makes a new kind of leader. Now here's why I think that that's what this text is all about. Because again, Jesus is imparting to his disciples things he knows that they need to know before he's going to depart and no longer be with them. And these are the men that his, now keep in mind, his death and his resurrection are going to establish a new entity, a thing called the church. A group of people who are going to live life together on, a, on the same mission together, closely connected to one another. And these are the guys that are going to lead that reality. These are the ones that he is entrusting. These disciples are the ones who will be responsible for leading that thing. And so he says, we need to take a moment here and talk about what it looks like to lead. In particular, how the gospel, the good news that I have come that I am going to die for the sins of the world and that I will be raised from the dead. How that, an understanding of that reality and the implications of it create a new type of leader, in particular disciples, the kinds of leaders that you're meant to be. Now let me, let me pause for a moment there and say this. I recognize that some of you might think to yourself, well, I'm not really a leader, so maybe this doesn't apply to me. I, I don't... I don't hold any position of leadership. And I want to broaden our understanding of leadership a little bit if I can before we get going, because I think this applies to all of us. Now, some of us hold positions of leadership. We are in organizations or uh, parts of the church or uh, in our workplace. We hold a position of authority, a hold a position of leadership. And so it's pretty easy. We go, okay, I'm a leader in that sense. Positionally, I'm a leader. And yet some of us don't hold a position of leadership, but I guarantee you that every one of you is exerting influence in your life on some other person. Would you agree with that? which is really the broadest definition of leadership. You may not hold a position of authority, but if you're a mom or a dad, you exert a lot of influence on some little rugrats in your home, right? If you are, uh, if you are not a parent, but, but a peer, a student, you exert influence on those that you come in contact with every day in your spheres of influence. Maybe it's an organization you're a part of. Perhaps it's just by being in class with other students. You are exerting influence somewhere, some way, in some shape or form. And so I would argue that all that Jesus has to teach about leadership applies specifically in some ways to those who are leading uh, in certain contexts, but in positions of, of leadership, but it applies to all of us in the influence we exert. So I want to see if we can't examine how Jesus is teaching us or what he's teaching us about the kind of leader that the gospel creates. Not just because the disciples are going to have to lead the church, but because he knew that all of us would need to know these things. So let's start with this. I want to make three observations about leadership. And the first one is this. Is why is it that leadership so often seems to fail or often seems to go so wrong? Have you guys been around leadership gone wrong? Yeah, have you been a leader who's gone wrong? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at some point you've done something, you've made some mistake where you thought, I thought that was a good idea and it was not. Leadership just tends to go wrong a lot of the time, which is interesting because we are called by God to lead. Now, one of the things that happens is you read this passage and some people think that when Jesus says, let the leader be as the servant, that he's saying he's sort of invalidating in some way positions of authority and leadership. But friends, I want to tell you he's not. He's not saying that leaders shouldn't exist or that he doesn't delight in leaders or doesn't want leaders to lead things. He absolutely does. What he's saying is that it's got to be a different type of leader because we are so prone to failure. Now, keep in mind, a couple things that will help us understand. Let's look again at verses 24 and 25 because they, they sort of teach us the bulk of what we need to know here about how leadership goes wrong so often. He says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Okay, what is happening there? Now, you and I know that, that, is not, that that's not like a copacetic conversation, right? You know better than that. It's like socially unacceptable to walk and be, hey, let's talk about which one of us is best. Now, you or me, which one you think? Well, I'm smarter. You're better looking. How does that balance out? You know, right? 
anyone with any sense knows that this is a silly conversation. You don't, you don't gather around and say, let's talk about who's the greatest. Let's figure that out together, right? Yet the disciples are going there. And the other thing you need to know about the context of this is I told you this is taking place in the Lord's, during the Lord's Supper, which means that what, happens, what happened right before they have this conversation is Jesus removed his outer garments, got down on his hands and knees, and washed their feet. Then he proceeded to break bread and serve the cup and say, these are representative of my body, which I'm going to give for the sins of humankind to redeem you. So, of course, the logical next conversation is, hey, which one of us is best? There are six different times in the Gospels that this conversation happens. Now, some of those six occurrences in the Gospels are repeats. or It's Mark telling the same story that Luke is telling, telling the same story that Matthew is telling, right? But what we know is that there are at least three times told out six different times in the Gospels that the disciples have this argument, Six times that's repeated for us. Now, friends, pay attention when you're reading through the Gospels and something like this gets repeated over and over, right? Again and again, the disciples return to this idea of which one of us is greatest, and Jesus instructs them and tells them. At another point, he brings a child and sits the child down on his lap, and he says, hey, the one who is greatest is the one who's most like this child. And we heard him here say, the one who's gonna lead needs to be as the youngest, and we'll unpack what that means a little bit but he keeps pointing them back again and again to a reality of what real gospel leadership looks like. Now, the first reason why I think, I'm gonna get this, okay? The disciples are having a tough time um, with this. It, it should be relatively, I mean, their tone deafness should be somewhat shocking, right? Because by the way, I didn't mention this. Every time, every one of the six times the gospels bring up this conversation, do you know what has happened right before that? I'm not talking about 10 or 20 verses before it. I'm talking about in the verses directly before the verses where they have this argument. Every single time Jesus has just gotten done saying, I'm gonna die for the sins of the world. I'm gonna give up my life so that you can have life and so that those who would come to faith in me could have life. And the very next thing the disciples do is argue about who is greatest. So it's as if the gospel writers are trying to say to us, hey, this is a big problem. This is something that is so deeply buried in the human heart to want to be great and made much of and to have positions of authority that it's really hard to get past. It's so hard to get past, in fact, that those who walk with Jesus every day for three years heard him talk about his death and the very next thing they did was to talk about whether or not they were gonna get to be great or not. When they say who's gonna be greatest, they're not talking about which one of us is gonna be uh, necessarily most influential or which one of us is gonna be wisest or most godly. What they're saying is when Jesus establishes his kingdom, which one of us is gonna get to rule over all the other ones of us? Which one of us is gonna get to be CEO in King Jesus? That's what we're worried about. Kingdom Jesus, I said King Jesus. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Which one of us is gonna get to be in charge when this whole thing goes down? That's essentially what they're talking about, right? So the first thing that I think we see about why leadership often goes wrong is that it's because we use it to shore up our fragile identities. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Often leaders use their positions of authority, they use their power, their leadership, to shore up fragile identities. Now we need to cut the disciples some slack, okay? I don't wanna be overly tough on them. The gospels are pretty good at pointing out how blind they are at different points. You and I should probably recognize that if it's true of them, it's true of who else? Us, yeah, absolutely, right? 
Let's remember the context in which the disciples are being brought up. Now, they lived in the ancient Near East in, in the Jewish culture where the ultimate power was not held by political leaders, but by religious leaders. So every young Jewish boy grows up wanting to be not king. He grows up wanting to be rabbi. You guys get the difference, right? The Pharisees don't come off real well in the Gospels if you've read them. These, these guys called the Pharisees come off as sort of the religious elite who are, who are stuck and fixated on things that don't matter and who are legalistic and Jesus condemns them and tells them that they're dead inside. They have the appearance of life, but they're not alive. There's not a lot good to be said about Pharisees, but one of the things that you and I need to understand is that in this world, a Pharisee was what every Jewish boy would have wanted to be the religious elite, the Green Beret, right? The army rangers of religiosity. That's a weird mix of metaphors, but go with me, all right? That's who they want to be. And they would have been raised in a situation where as young men, they would have been put in as early as six to eight years old, would have been put in essentially Torah school to learn the Torah. Those who excelled best at that would have then had the opportunity to go forward. And those who excelled best at learning, I'm talking about things like memorizing the entire Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible, right? Then if you pass that test and you go forward to the next one, you get to memorize the entire Old Testament. Then if you pass that, you essentially learn how to do what is essentially scripture kung fu, uh, which is like you state a verse and they come back at you with a verse and you just basically learn to argue with the Bible. It's a really bad idea, right? They essentially learn to just kind of go back and have these religious debates and the best of the best of the best would be picked out by by the most important rabbis of the day and said, come and follow me. Now, where were the disciples when Jesus said, come and follow me? Yeah, they were fishing, they were collecting taxes. Basically, they were not following other rabbis, which means at some point in their life, what happened to them? They failed the test. They didn't have a position of authority. They had to go back and basically apprentice under their dads to learn how to fish because there was nothing else they could do. Because at some point along the way, somebody said, I'm sorry, you don't pass the test. You're not the best of the best. Why don't you head home? We don't need you anymore. Now, do you imagine that if that was your situation, which by the way, should make us marvel all the more that Jesus chose. They're not even the JV, okay? They are the freshman B team, right? And if you're on the freshman B team, you're never making the varsity. I'm sorry to break it to you, right? That's probably bad. Some of you keep working hard, (laughs) keep working hard. That growth spurt may be coming. But they are, they're just, they're, they're, the, they're the ones no one wanted. That's why they're available when Jesus says, come and follow me. And they don't have to say, hey, I, no, I got this other rabbi. He really thinks I've got what it takes and I'm working for him and I really can't follow you. you know, there's none of that. There's only, sure, great. This is awesome. A rabbi wants me. Now, do you imagine if you've been raised in that scenario and that was your experience that you might be wrestling deep inside with a few insecurities. You might be wondering about your identity a little bit, wondering what gives you value and meaning and purpose. That's exactly what's going on with the disciples. And so this conversation about who's the greatest is exactly that. They're asking, are we going to get positions of authority because we still are not convinced who we truly are or that we have value or merit or a sense of established identity? Now, look, friends, it's not just the disciples who do this. We do this all the time. Leaders do this all the time. My guess is you have done it. I have done it. 
Leaders use their positions of authority and their leadership often to, to make themselves feel okay about themselves. Right? As long as somebody has to do what I say, as long as I'm in charge of something, it gives me a sense of purpose. It gives me a sense of value. I, I matter. But friends, I wanna tell you, man, that is disastrous leadership. It's just, it just leads to harshness, sort of a dictatorial spirit. It leads to poor decisions and sort of a clamping down on those you lead because you just can't handle anyone ever disagreeing with you or offering an alternative idea of what your leadership might need to lead towards. That's what happens. That's what happens when the breakdown of leadership comes, when you're using a position of leadership to shore up a fragile identity. And I can tell you what it looked like in my own life. One of the things that I've recognized in myself is years ago, God just sort of flattened me with the reality that every time I saw him use someone else to do something good, that I found myself being really critical of that person. I couldn't, I, it didn't hit me. It's, that's how it is, right? Our sin is hidden from us for, for a while until God graciously smacks us across the head with it. And I just remember one day he just said, what is wrong? Like, it, it sort of felt like God graciously saying, what is wrong with you? Don't you see that I'm doing amazing things and you're finding reasons to just kind of just critique it and criticize it. Well, it's not this or it's not that. And what God pointed out to me was that I was so insecure in my authority and my leadership that he'd given me and feeling like it needed to be broader or grander or I, I don't know what, that I was essentially just, just slicing up anybody else who was leading effectively, at least in my own head, maybe not so much out loud. But it just, led, it just led to this sickness. I mean, just this sickness in the soul of not being able to celebrate the work of God. My goodness, how bad is that? Don't you wanna celebrate the work of God wherever you find it and through whomever he does it through? Oh my goodness. Yeah, but when leadership is how you establish your sense of identity and value, whenever somebody else leads well, you don't have the luxury of saying like, oh yes and amen to what you've done through this leader, through this person. I delight in it, I'm excited about it. You can't do that. Why? Because your value rests in your ability to lead and if they're better than you, then you have less value. Leadership used to shore up, I have firsthand experience, friends. Leadership used to give a sense of identity and value is a train wreck. It's just a train wreck. It's a train wreck in your parenting if you lead out of that. It's a train wreck in your workplace. It is a train wreck in the church. Second reason Jesus gives here, I think, about why leadership often goes awry is because we think no one else can do what we do. I mean, if we're honest, we think no one else can do what we do. Actually, I'm sorry, I skipped one. Let me go back. If you've got the sermon notes, you recognize that I just skipped one. Second reason I wanna give you is this, because we forget that we're not at the top of the leadership chain. And this is important because listen to what he says in verse 25. So in verse 25, he says, and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, okay? So that's the point I wanna make is this. When he says the rulers of the Gentiles, what he's pointing out is in this day and age, right? Jesus is gonna come, he's gonna die and he's gonna be raised from the dead so that Gentiles can be brought into, non-Jews, can be brought into relationship with him. But at this point, 
Basically, the entire Gentile, Gentile world has a very different view of who God is. And they do not, in a Jewish mindset, submit to the authority of the one true God. And so when he says the Gentile rulers, they lead like this, what he's saying is people who don't recognize that their leadership comes under the authority of God and has to be submitted to God, this is how they lead. In other words, people who don't recognize that they are accountable for how they lead to a higher authority will end up making a mistake in the way that they lead. That's what he's getting at when he points out the Gentile rulers and how they rule. And he says what they do is, he says they, they, it says they exercise lordship over them, which sounds relatively innocuous, but maybe a better way to understand that phrase is what he's saying is they lord it over them. They lord it over them, kind of in a, I'm in charge, you're not. They're domineering. Maybe, maybe the way to think of it is like, if you have kids and you have more than one kid and you've left your oldest kid in charge at any point, like the first time you did that and they got real excited about it and they were like, they kind of did the na 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 I'm in charge to the, to the middle kid and the youngest kid, right? I have no experience of this in my house. This doesn't happen. And they just, they, they lord it over them. I'm in charge, you're, in, you're not. You know, it's, it's just, they just relish it. And they're gonna use it to get what they want, right? That's kind of the idea he's conveying here. And so what he's saying is, what he's saying is, when you don't recognize that there is a one true great leader above you who dictates to you how your leadership is to be used, you will be prone to go astray. The third thing, which I said already, is this. The reason leadership goes astray is because we think no one else can do what we do. Now he said, they get called, these Gentile rulers, they get called benefactors. Now that, again, that sounds like a harmless term, but you need to understand what that term means, right? A benefactor is essentially a term of honor that would have been used for a political leader uh, in this day and age. And it's kind of the idea of someone who we are benefiting from, but it's a title of honor essentially given by those who are under the person's leadership to more or less suck up to them to brown nose, to say, it's, it's like a title we give to you in order to say, where would we be without you? And he's saying that the, that the Gentile leaders, these leaders who don't submit to the lordship of God, that they love having that title. They love having people sort of pat them on the back and say, where would we be without your brilliant leadership? It's phenomenal, right? And he's saying, you shouldn't want that title. You shouldn't want people coming underneath you and kind of being, where would we be without you? Because one of the things that does is it makes you think that you're indispensable, right? And friends, let me, in case no one's broken it to you yet, I don't care how gifted a leader you are. I don't care how intelligent you are. Maybe you've made amazing decisions at every turn and people under your leadership have just thrived. No matter how good as a leader you are, do you know something? You're not necessary, if you were to vanish tomorrow, God would bring someone into that space and life would go on. That organization, that entity would go on and it would be okay. In fact, it might be better. When leaders begin to believe that they are necessary and that no one else can do what they do, which we're really good at convincing ourselves of, no one else can do what I do. I do it with such tact and such deftness and such wisdom. Surely no one else could do what I do. I mean, you don't say that out loud. I know you don't say that out loud, right? You have better sense than the disciples. 
Who's the greatest? Can't believe they asked that out loud. You've got more sense than that. But friends, I know your heart because I know my heart. And we are pretty quick to convince ourselves that we're pretty necessary. But that, that sends leadership astray because you begin to believe that you're the key to making the thing go forward and you begin to lose sight of the fact that it's God that makes the thing go forward and that you are not necessary. And it totally, particularly in the church, friends, it thwarts everything the church is meant to stand for because we are dead set. Like as a church, we are dead set on you discovering the amazing gifts God has given you through his spirit dwelling in you and using them because you're needed, because everybody's needed. It's not enough to have one good leader. The church is not meant to operate that way. The church is meant to have just an army of people who are all really gifted in a variety of things and are operating in that full steam. And we want that so much around here. We want you to thrive and flourish in what God made you to be and what he made you to do. Leaders are pretty quick to convince themselves, though, that they are necessary, and it makes leadership go wrong. Now, Enough with leadership done wrong. Let's talk about leadership done right because Jesus is gonna turn the page now. He's gonna say in verse 24 and 25, this is what it looks like when leadership goes wrong. Here's why it goes wrong. But then in verse 26, he's gonna say this. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Okay, in one verse, Jesus has told us two phenomenal things about what good leadership does. One is a fundamental principle that, that underlies everything else the scriptures teach, everywhere else the scriptures teach it about leadership. And the other is a practice, okay? So let's talk about the fundamental principle first. Did you catch the phrase at the end of, of the verse right there? He says, let the leader be as one who what? one who serves, right? Now, again, he's not saying that there shouldn't be any leaders. He's saying that leaders who truly lead in the way he wants them to should be the first to serve, the first to look to the needs of others. Here's what he's getting at. Let me sort of bottom line this for us, okay? He is essentially saying that this is the fundamental purpose for which your leadership exists. Your leader, here's the fundamental principle. Your leadership, your position of leadership, your authority, your power, wherever you have it, exists for the good of those you are leading, not for your own good. Now, that's a pretty popular concept even in the business world these days, so you may not be all that astounded by that, but you need to understand that in this day and age, when Jesus said that, it would have been completely counterintuitive because everybody aspired to be leaders because when you're a leader, then you don't have to do the dirty work anymore. Because when you're a leader, now people do the hard stuff for you. You don't have to get down on your hands and knees and wash feet anymore. You don't have to do all the things that you did before you were a leader. Now you've got a staff to do it for you. Isn't that awesome? And Jesus is saying, actually, when you become a leader, you should be the first one to take off the outer garments, get down on your knees and wash some feet. You better be quick to do that. Because your leadership exists not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of those you are leading. So ask this question, are the people under my leadership thriving? Are they thriving in all that God made them to be and do? It doesn't, doesn't mean leaders don't make decisions, make hard decisions. Doesn't mean leaders don't upset people when they make decisions. That's unavoidable. It means that they lead for the good of their people, not their own good. And look, friends, get this. He's not just saying that your leadership should, as an ancillary benefit, result in your people thriving. It should be the chief end of your leadership that they would thrive. And because this is the 
the fundamental principle that Jesus is purporting as it pertains to leadership, the thing we can know is if we don't get this, everything else will go wrong from there. This must be the first, the base, the solid rock upon which our leadership is based. Everything comes from this. You get this one, a lot of other things start going right. You miss this one, it doesn't matter how much other stuff you do right and well, if it's not rooted in this fundamental principle, it will not work ultimately in the way God designed it to work. You with me, church? So that's the fundamental principle. Here's the practice he gives them. Good leaders never presume upon position. I'll explain what I mean by that. Good leaders never presume upon position, but lead from clear conviction and character. Look at what he said right before he said the leader should be as the servant. He said the leader should be as the what? Not the greatest. They should be as the the youngest. Now that's interesting because that doesn't seem to be the opposite of greatest, right? It should be greatest. They should be as the least. But he said as the youngest. Well, why point out the sort of youthfulness of the person. Well, here's why. Because what he's saying is, what he's saying is, you should lead as people who don't lead out of, like, I have a position of authority. A young person, particularly in this day and age, would not have a tremendous place of authority. No one's gonna put the eight-year-old in charge of anything, right? They don't have a position of authority. And so what he's saying is, he's not saying uh, be naive or be as if you're not, you know, be as if you have the information an eight-year-old has. He's saying, I want you to be as one who does not say, I am in charge, therefore you will do this. He's saying, I want you to lead not out of position. That's what we call leading out of position. I have a position, therefore you will follow, right? I want you to lead out of character and out of conviction. Now, a leader who leads out of conviction is one who keeps his ear or her ear close to the ground, listening to what God says and is deeply convicted that God's people must be and do the things that God says they must be and do and leads forward in order to help them move towards that reality. And friends, unless you are deeply convicted, we'll just take the church as an example. Unless you're deeply convicted about the kind of people God's people should be, you cannot lead God's people unless you are deeply convicted about what the gospel does in the life of a person, you cannot lead God's people. Think about your workplace. Unless you are deeply convicted that your workplace should be a certain kind of workplace because Jesus is ruling and reigning in your heart there and therefore it should spread out through you to make the place where you work a place of thriving and flourishing. Unless you're deeply convicted of that, you can't lead. The second thing he says is you don't lead out of position, you lead out of conviction, but you also lead out of character. Here's what that means. It means that in spite of all the times, and they will come almost daily, friends, in spite of all the times that you will have opportunity to seemingly propel the work that you are doing forward in an expedient way if you would just sacrifice integrity to do it. In spite of that reality, you must choose character. Because I've said it before and I will say it again. People do not follow position. They follow character. People do not follow position. They follow character. And in that moment when you think your leadership will be sort of propelled forward by sacrificing that integrity to get whatever that that sacrifice of integrity promises, you are thwarting your own leadership in the long term. You are cutting your legs out from underneath yourself 
That's true in the church. It's true in your home. It's true in, in politics, in business. It is true everywhere. Leaders lead from character. Last question is this. How does the gospel create a new kind of leader? So let's just acknowledge this. If you're, if you're joining us today and you are <clears throat> new to church or you're skeptical about the claims of the gospel and you're wondering who Jesus is, you're in the right place. You're exploring well. We're trying to explore the same things you're exploring. Um, let me point this out, okay? All of us recognize, believer, not a believer, we all recognize we need to be good leaders. Like where, where we are leading, we need to lead well but we probably also recognize that leadership goes wrong a lot. And so we're asking ourselves, well, okay, how do I make up the difference between those two? The, my, prone, my, my, my proneness to, to lead poorly uh, and the reality that I need to lead well, like how do I close the gap between those two things? And there's really only two answers to that question. Answer number one is you dig within yourself to find enough wisdom, enough intelligence, enough winsomeness, enough force of personality, whatever it may be, to shore up your ability as a leader. Uh, I tried that for a while. I'm just gonna tell you, I don't think it works very well. At least it didn't for me. Now, you may be way smarter. You may be, have way more force of personality than I have, so maybe it'll work for you for a little bit longer, but I'm pretty convinced that that comes to an end faster than you think. The other option is to look outside of yourself for someone who's actually able to change you into the type of leader you need to be. That's the other option. I'm telling you, it's a far superior option. The gospel has the ability to shape a new kind of leader and to change you in the way you lead in a way that nothing else can. Let me show you how. Jesus says three things here, and I'm gonna hit them so fast here because I wanna get to the Lord's table. He says three things here about how the gospel creates a new kind of leader. The first is this, the sacrifice of the gospel gives us a new mind. The thing he points out, he says, look, he says, who's greater, the one who sits at the table and is served or the one who's serving? And he's like, in the world's eyes, it's the person who's sitting at the table. And he says, but I'm here as one who serves. He's not just pointing out the fact that he was serving them at the, Lord's, at the, at the Last Supper. He's pointing out the fact that he's about ready to go die for the sins of humankind, that he's gonna sacrifice himself. He is here fundamentally, not as one who rules and reigns in power, but as one who serves. And he's saying, if that's how I am coming into the world as one who serves, then you also ought to serve as well. Again, back to the fundamental principle of why our leadership exists. But here's what he's getting at about what the gospel does. He's saying, because I am doing that, because that's who I am, because the gospel is marked by sacrifice, and if you're going to believe the gospel, then you're gonna to have to become a person who buys into that mindset, whose mind becomes totally changed, that everything Jesus represented in that upside down kingdom of saying, I will lay down my life in order to gain life for others. That in order to believe the gospel, if you've called yourself by the name Christian, you've believed that. And if you believe that, it gives you a fundamentally new mindset, which means you don't have just an example to follow in Jesus who served with his leadership. You have a living, breathing spirit inside of you because of the gospel that has imparted to you a new mindset that says that sacrifice is the way to true life, which can shape the way you lead. 
But unless that mindset is brought from the outside into you, I'm just not sure how you get to the place where you're willing to use your leadership, not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of others at every turn. Because here's the mark, I mean, here's the marker, friends. Leadership will, at different points, benefit you. Even as you seek to use it for the benefit of others, there will be times where it is mutually beneficial, where it will benefit you. The real marker of leadership is what happens when you are leading and there is no benefit for you. What do you do in the moments as a leader when the benefit is all for them and none for you? That's the marker of whether or not you are leading as the gospel saturates your leadership. The second thing the gospel does to make a new kind of leader is that the grace of the gospel humbles us, enabling us to seek the good of others. This is a really simple idea. The gospel teaches us that we're not saved by our own works, by our own merit, by our own value. We're not. We, we couldn't do anything to earn God's love. We can't do anything to unearn his love. It's good news, right? Because I can't do anything to earn my righteousness before God, what that means is that I'm saved by this thing we call grace, which means getting a gift I didn't deserve. And because that's true, I'm humbled because I'm no longer saying, look how great I am, you should save me, or I've, I have this thing I've done, therefore you must save me because I've been good enough. All I count on, all I rely on is the grace of God. And when that comes into play, it humbles a person, it humbles us, it lowers us, it lowers our sense of our own self-importance. And once that happens, because the gospel does that, it enables you to lead as one who is able to, to embrace and receive humility. You guys follow that connection? The gospel does that, it's powerful. The last thing the gospel does is the promises of the gospel give us righteousness and hope that establish a new identity and a new desire. Here's what I mean by that. One of the promises of the gospel is that you will be made completely righteous. That's who you are, that's your identity before God, completely righteous. That's how he sees you. What good news, right? What good news. And if that's the case, remember what we said, the, the, the first thing that kind of is a train wreck to leadership? It's when we're using leadership to shore up our own fragile identity. Well, guess what? If you've received complete, perfect righteousness from God in Jesus Christ, guess what you don't need to do with your leadership? Use it to shore up your identity because your identity is firm. It's established and it's done. So that promise of the gospel enables you to sidestep that challenge, that landmine in leadership. The second thing it does, and Jesus points this out to them. He says, you've been with me in my trials. Now you're gonna rule over and judge the nations of Israel. He's pointing out the authority they will have, which is a gracious thing to do in spite of the fact that they've just said which one of us is gonna be most important. He actually takes the time to say to them, you actually are gonna have authority. You are gonna lead. And he points that out to them so that they would see that leading well in the here and now is worth doing because you have a hope of leading in the future. And because that's true, because you will lead and have authority in the kingdom of God, it's kind of a no-brainer to use your authority in the here and now to serve that authority rather than to use it for the benefit of the here and now. So the gospel does those things and it does it powerfully. It is the key that unlocks the ability to lead well. Friends, I want you to have a vision in your mind of what it would look like when we as a church, in all the places where God sends us, when we leave this room and we go out into homes and into jobs and into neighborhoods, when we are leading in such a way that, that 
it is saturated by the type of gospel leadership we've just talked about, where that fundamental principle of my leadership doesn't exist for me, it exists for them, when that's being lived out through us, can you imagine, think about all the workplaces, just the workplaces that are represented in this room. Now, if you can imagine that and imagine that all of us were leading in this way, do you think it would change the place where we live? Do you think some people might be shaped by that? Do you think people who have been oppressed and pushed down, groups of people who have been overlooked and marginalized, do you think they might begin to find life in the gospel? Our city will be transformed when we press into gospel leadership. When we press into gospel leadership.